Join me if you would. Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Uh, a little bit of confession before we begin. Um, we're in the middle of a teaching time, so this is going to be very much teaching today. It's going to be a lot of information. Uh, I pray the Lord will use it. Uh, guys, uh, so those of you that have been with us a long time, we're three and a half years into the book of uh, Matthew, and uh, we're coming to the end, down to the last two chapters out of 28, and as y'all realize, this is the climax of it all, right? So we're heading toward a climax. We're on a journey toward the cross that we've been singing about today, and we're going to arrive at a grave, and it'll eventually be an empty grave. Uh, but right now, so you guys with me this morning, we're on a section, we're in a section uh, where Jesus is being tried. By that I mean judicially evaluated and tried as a criminal in front of human beings. You're the son of God. Uh, so we've been tracking with this. Uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've noted there are two trials of Jesus. There's the Jewish phase, the religious aspect that had three phases of it. And then there's the Roman First one, and it's going to be a lot of background information, so if teaching bores you, I'm really sorry, uh, it's going to be a long service for you, but if you don't mind, like engaging, and honestly, if we're ever going to learn and just like be students of the Word of God, we're in a section that you ought to be like, I want to know as much about what went down to accomplish my salvation as possible, and so we're going to kind of be bringing in multiple passages of Scripture to try to bring this about, so here's where we're at. The Jewish trial is kind of behind us. Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, taken over to the former high priest Annas. We talked about that. Then Annas sent him to his son-in-law, the current high priest of Israel, named Caiaphas. That was the main trial was before Caiaphas. You remember that? All these lies were being told against Jesus, and they were trying to find something that would stick. But they couldn't. They dr drum up some twisted version of Jesus supposedly going to destroy the temple, which was a lie. But that doesn't even stick. Finally, in frustration, Caiaphas, is, Caiaphas says to Jesus, as the high priest, to Jesus, I adjure thee by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus gives an affirmative that, yes, he is the Christ and the Son of God. Because they don't know who he is, 
They don't know who he is. In their mind, he has just committed blasphemy. And so they come to that conclusion in the night. But you remember the third phase. We looked at it briefly last week. The third Jewish phase was a quick convening because the nighttime trials were illegal and they know it. So now they got to throw together a fuller trial, and I think they move over toward the temple from Caiaphas' house down to the temple, to their official chamber. And then they do kind of a formal, you know, put a rubber stamp on it, trial, rehearsing what Jesus said in the night, all in favor. So again, they officially have found him in the daytime guilty of blasphemy. But they have a problem. They can't kill him. The Romans are in charge. They can only do so much. And so they're going to need to go to this man named Pilate. And they're going to turn him over to Pilate. So at this point, Jesus is officially Pilate's problem, if you want to think of it that way. No, Jesus is not a problem. But his situation, his trial, is now dumped on Pilate. They've got their case, and they're going to use a lot of deception and lies and falsehoods to try to condemn Jesus to death before the Roman governor. And so with that in mind, again, they can't kill Jesus. They need Pilate's help. He's the man in charge. He's the Roman governor. So with that in mind, would you look with me at our four verses out of Matthew is where we'll start. And I'm going to give some background on this man because it really helped me. And I think it's going to help us in the coming days to better understand what happens and why the things happen the way they do in the various gospels. Notice in verse number 11. So now it's early morning. They had the last Jewish phase of the trial. They found him guilty of blasphemy. Now they take him over to Pilate, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. The governor is seated. By the way, we're jumping in the middle. You should feel that. If you heard all that I just said, and we've had these two kind of aside stories, Peter denied the Lord, and Judas was remorseful, though not fully repentant, and he wanted to give the money back that he got for betraying Jesus. He ultimately goes out and hangs himself. So we've had these two side stories, but in the next few weeks, we're focused just on the trial of Jesus. He's front and center in everything. And all that's going down. Now, verse 11, you should feel like this is strange the way Matthew is writing this. And I don't understand why it was written this way. The Holy Spirit brought this about, but he also has Mark. Mark is very much like Matthew, but he also has Luke and John. And so really we need all of them to get the story because feel verse 11. Back in verse 2, they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then we're told about Judas's remorse and suicide. Then we jump right to verse 11. This is very unusual sounding, the, the flow. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Do y'all hear that? Like, like, what? We're just jumping to that. Yes. In Matthew's account, we're jumping straight to that. Pilate is seated. He's the governor. Jesus is standing before him. I'll go ahead and tell you, the Jewish leaders are outside. This is inside. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. You said it. An affirmative. Yes, you have said so. I believe verses 12, 13, and 14 are kind of a commentary around the main verse of verse 11. Verse 11 is kind of the main thing in these four verses. And I believe verse 12, 13, 14 kind of tell what's been happening around it and the impact it's having on Pilate. Look at verse 12. So he answers the question, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. 
So they're charging him with these things. Jesus says nothing. But we know he answers the question about, the, about him being a king. Verse 13, then Pilate said to him, as this is going on, and I don't know that this is in perfect chronological order. It doesn't have to be. It's the tone of what's happening. Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? He's blown away by it. It's like they're saying these things. Jesus is saying nothing. There's going to be this, this private conversation where he asks him about if he's the king of the Jews. Jesus answers in the affirmative. But now we're looking back at this time where there's this triangle there talking to him about him. And Jesus is saying absolutely nothing. Verse 13, Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave, no answer to, but he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So that the governor was greatly amazed. Don't you remember that? Pilate, when he's the more, it's the first time he's been exposed to Jesus in person. He's no doubt heard of him, but now he's exposed to Jesus. And here's a summation Matthew says, knowing his heart, he is greatly amazed. This man, when charged by these guys, he says nothing to their accusations. All right, so here's what we need to do. So kind of you'll know what's coming. The, the over half of our message today is going to be this intro that I'm about to give you and then the first point. So don't feel like when I say in our second point, like, oh, wow, we've got that much longer to go out of three. No, we'll be well over halfway at that point, okay? But I honestly, guys, what I want to do the next few minutes, I think this helped me, this week's study helped me to really tie together some of the dynamics that take place here, and it kind of helped me to understand some of the verses that we're going to be reading this morning and in the coming weeks. There's some things that we need to know about this man, Pilate. Look at verse 11 again. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him. We know his name back in verse 2 was Pilate. So if you're taking notes, several things about Pontius Pilate that are directly going to factor into Jesus' trial. Guys, you really need to get this. If you're not here this morning, and you're, uh, again... Uh, if you don't get this, you're going to be at a disadvantage in the coming weeks because I'm not going to be able to revisit it all. First thing I want you to know, there's much more than this, but I'm going to give you three things about Pilate. Number one, we know that he's called the governor, but that's a general term. He's also, the historians have found out, he's known as a proconsul, or the word I'm going to have you write down is he, he is a prefect of Rome. And as a prefect governor, a prefect, a proconsul, he answers, Pilate answers directly to the emperor Titus. He does not answer to the Roman Senate. So if you're taking notes, write that down. He answers directly to the emperor, in his case, Tiberius. I said Titus. Tiberius. And he answers directly to him, not the Senate. So you say, what's the difference? All right. In the Roman Empire, if an area that was conquered and under their control was not too hostile, not too volatile, they wouldn't require very many or very few troops, Roman troops. Those were under the Roman Senate's control. But areas that were hostile and volatile, I mean like powder kegs, could just go off at any time. There could be real trouble. We're going to have to send in Roman troops to occupy the land. Well, then those answer directly to the emperor because he's at the top. This is an empire. So it's not so much the Senate has power, but the emperor has more power. And so that's where Pontius Pilate finds himself. He's a governor prefect in Palestine. And this, if you're looking at, at, at the ancient Roman Empire, areas that were trouble spots, Israel would have been at the very top of the list. This guy has, of all the jobs 
of his peers, he has one of the most unenviable jobs. Second thing I want you to know about him. Pilate was especially disliked by the Jews. He's especially disliked. I mean, in other words, yeah, the Jews disliked the Romans and they disliked their Roman rulers, of course, but they especially disliked Pilate. Why? I'm going to give you a couple of reasons. One, this man refused. He just refused. Apparently, he, maybe he was really proud to be a Roman. He's obviously very arrogant. I'm just telling this is what's... In the coming weeks, you're going to think I'm a, a Pilate apologist, probably. I think that's where we're going to go, and you're going to think I'm making this great defense of this man, but I'm not, because right here I'm telling you, he's extremely arrogant. He refused. He's ruling over a group of people. He doesn't know a lot about them, and he doesn't want to know a lot about them. I guess his attitude is this. We won. You lost. I'm in control. I don't care what kind of people you are. And the second thing about him that really irritates them is he intentionally does things over and over that he knows angers them. So he intentionally does things that anger them. And this is going to get, like, in other words, we live in a day of polls, Right? This president, well, how's his poll numbers? And this one and that. And oh, wow, that one's in the 60s. That's pretty good. That one's in the 50s. Not so good. Oh, it's down in the 40s. People don't like it. It's not going to go well. If you were to take a poll of positive poll numbers for Pilate, it would be like non-existent. But here's the thing. By itself, he don't care. This is not an election. I'm appointed by the emperor. I'm in charge here. But that, I, that notion is going to get him in trouble. Now, guys, I want to real quick, fast as I can. I want to put a little bit of depth to what I just said. They dislike him especially. He doesn't care to know them, and he does things that he knows angers them. Let me give you three. When the Romans would march, like we have flagpoles, they had their standards, and they'd have banners and flags on them. At the top of the standard in the Roman, they would have uh, uh, like a, a brazen or a molten or carved or, or, or poured, however you want to do it, image of either an eagle or, their symbol, or the current emperor, which in his case was Tiberius. And so those would be on the top of their flagpoles. Most anyone who was ruling over Israel knows if you're going to go into Jerusalem, you take those off because they see that as idolatry and you're going to have big time trouble. Pontius Pilate gets appointed about five years before what we're looking at. The first time he goes to Jerusalem, knowing they're going to get upset, he doesn't take them off. He leaves them up arrogantly and invites the rage. And sure enough, the Jews see it. They spot it. He wants to let them know there's a new sheriff in town, and I'm in charge, and you're not. And he's kind of sticking his thumb in their eye. But they get really angry, and there's almost this riot, so much so they keep calling for him to take them off. He will not do it. He eventually leaves and goes to the capital city of Caesarea, picture the name, the root word Caesar. He, Jerusalem's not the capital city. He goes back to the capital city of Caesarea. Many of the Jews follow him all the way to Caesarea. They're outside. They're, they're about to have a, they're having a protest, about to have a riot. He ignores them and continues to just ignore and ignore. Finally, when he's had enough, he comes out, surrounds them with troops, threatens to slaughter them on the spot if they don't quit and go home. They, I don't think he's planning on what they do. They end up burying their necks and say, go ahead and kill us. This is how important this is to us. And now he has a dilemma. Is he going to start his reign by massacring innocent Jews, or is he going to step back and take them off and not do that again? Long story short, round one ultimately goes to the Jewish leadership. He doesn't kill them. He's wise enough. That's not how I don't want to start with a massacre. 
So he comes out strong, but he ends up getting embarrassed in, in the end. Second thing, quickly. Jerusalem needed a new aqueduct. They were in great need of one, and they knew it. And so he had one built, and it was very useful, and it ended up being, being a favorable thing. But when it came time to pay for it, he doesn't use Roman dollars. He ends up forcing the Jews to, do, to use temple treasury money to pay for the aqueduct. So the temple benefits from the new aqueduct, but they had no say in this, and they hated him forcing them to use temple money for the aqueduct. Round two kind of goes to him, but they're angry. Then years later, just a little bit before what we're reading, he does a third thing. He gets this bright idea. He's going to put all these shields in Jerusalem, and he emblazons them with an inscription of Tiberius the emperor's name. And he's doing it to honor his emperor. But again, it enrages the Jews. And they end up reporting this time, they report him to Rome. And you think that Tiberius, who's being honored, would say, hey, they need to get over it. I like my name being on those shields. Tiberius, being more wise than Pilate, reprimands him, tells him, actually, take my name off of that and stop stirring up trouble. Pilate, remember, your number one job as a governor in the Roman Empire is to keep the peace, keep the order, make sure justice takes place. You just keep on stirring up trouble, and it's going to cost you. So round three ends up going to the Jews. And so, guys, that is what's at play this morning when we read these texts. There's this animosity and tension, and neither one likes the other. They're well aware of each other. They know each other face to face. They can't stand each other. And so Pilate, if you're taking notes on the third one, by the time of Jesus' trial, he has already been reported to Rome, been reprimanded, and he has this very shaky position now. And because he has a shaky position, he does not want to offend the Jews. He's not on his knees begging, but he sure doesn't want to do anything unless he really has to. He, doesn't, he wants to give as much as he can. Why? He doesn't want to lose his job. He doesn't want to have to shame and get relocated and get demoted. And so he knows he's already been reprimanded by Rome once. You don't want to have that happen twice. And again, I'll not go into it, but eventually this man, Pontius Pilate, he came down too heavy-handed in something that happened in Samaria, killed some people in a cruel way. He got reported, and he eventually does get deposed and replaced. But that's after what we're studying here. So that's the background. Would you look quickly one more time, verse 13. So Pilate said to Jesus, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? So what is the issue here? As I'm reading that in Matthew, if I'm you guys, I'm probably thinking this. Don't you hear how many things they testify? Where are, where are these charges? We don't have these charges. So there's obviously more to the story. All we saw was we jumped right in the middle where Pilate asked Jesus if he's the king of the Jews. So what are all these charges? So to find this, we need to go to another section. So if you would join me in John chapter 18. John chapter 18, you can follow in your Bible or if you want to follow along on that handout of those verses that, that I gave you. John chapter 18, and let's notice number one this morning. The Jews, so we're seeing three things that are surrounding this first phase of the Roman trial. Number one is very clear in the text. The Jews falsely accuse Jesus. The Jews are going to falsely accuse Jesus. Now, we're in John chapter 18. Let's get what he, again, there's no competition between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's all this complimenting. Put them all together and we get a fuller picture of what has taken place. All right. We're going to look at John 18, 28, all the way down to 38, but I'm going to stop in the first time period at verse 32. So would you read with me as I read out loud verse number 28? Let's get a feel for what's taking place. Here's John's version. 
Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Let me pause right there. Everybody look this way. Where is the governor's headquarters? So somewhere there was, was Caiaphas's palace. That's where the nighttime trial. And then we know there's ultimately this other second phase, and now they're going to take him, and John is condensing, and John is going to run and jump to the time where he's taken to the headquarters of the governor. Where is it? There's two possibilities. Some say that if you were to look at the temple, there's this fort in the upper northwest corner, this fort that would have been built up called Fort Antonia that the Romans used. They put a lot of soldiers there. They could look down over the temple and they could see if anything was happening that they needed to rush in and show a a show of force. And so possibly this means that Pilate is staying in Fort Antonia again at the northwest corner of the temple. The other is, you'll remember that Herod the Great, the greatest of the Herods, the original, Herod the Great had passed away about 25 years before this, and in Jerusalem he had built this large, nice, palatial, luxurious palace known as Herod the Great's palace, and so he's passed away now, and so the Romans, when they come into town, they could use his palace as their headquarters. So we don't know, is this Herod the Great's former palace, or is this Fort Antonio? We're not sure. Back to verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Now notice here, it was early morning. I'm going to estimate probably right around 6 is what most people would guess, 6 a.m. It was early morning. They've had this early morning trial of their own. Now they bring Jesus to him. It was early morning. They themselves, meaning the chief priests and elders of the Sanhedrin and the high priest himself, They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. They will not come inside. Why? So that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. They're not going to go in. They don't want to be defiled. They want to keep the Passover. They want to eat the Passover. And so as a result of that, you see verse 29. So Pilate, who's inside his palace headquarters, went outside to them and said, so You all have read this many times, this little section of Scripture here, but I want you to bring into play the things that you just put in those three dots a while ago and all that tension and animosity that's at place, and I think that will cause you to read verses 29 and 30 a little bit differently. And 31, watch verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him. So did you hear it? What are the charges? Here's what they say. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. You're Pilate. Normal question. What are the charges against this man? Hey, if he wasn't an evildoer, we wouldn't be bringing him here. 31. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your law, by your own law. Verse 31 continues. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This, John writes commentary, this was to fulfill. They're saying, we the Jews, we can't put anyone to death. This was to fulfill. They're asking him to put him to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. I don't know if you guys felt it or not. Do you feel the animosity and the tension between them, them, what's happening here in verse 28 and 29? Let's reset the scene. It's very early in the morning. You're Pilate. You get this notification. The Jews are outside, the Jewish leadership. 
and they've got a guy bound up, and they're really agitated. It's not even, see, you've not had your breakfast yet. You've not, whatever you eat for breakfast, you've not had that yet. Here, you think it's going to be a normal, you're in town, you're visiting, because you know there's this Passover feast, and you're there to keep the order, make sure everything goes smoothly. Right out of the gate, here they are, right outside your door, and there's this big emergency. It's totally unplanned. You've not heard a thing about it. It's 6 a.m. in the morning, and they need a case to be heard. So Pilate says, all right, send them on in. I'm reading between the lines. Send them on in. And the poor fellow that had to tell Pilate this, bless his heart, uh, yeah, that's just it, sir. What's just it? I said I'll do it. Let's get it over with. Bring them on in. Yeah, they're, they're not coming in. Why are they not coming in? Uh, they say if they come in here, they're going to be defiled. What? Are you with me? They wake me up this morning, and now they won't come in here because my presence coming under my roof is going to defile. I'm unclean and corrupting? I can't stand those guys. Yes, sir, you're, you're going to need to go outside. He could have just bucked up and said, no, you bring them in here, and they'll have to get over it. Or, all right, all right. Don't get reported. So he goes outside. But I want you to take a quick note. I don't know 100% what verse 29 or verse 28 means there. Look at it one more time. Uh, we do need to kind of touch on it. Look at verse 28. They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the head, headquarters early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So I don't know for sure. I'm going to offer you a couple of ideas. Here's what the people say. What's taking place? It is, this apparently either means that the Judean Jews, that these guys are, they would observe the Passover the day after the Galilean Jews. Jesus and his disciples observed the Passover the previous night. Remember the Jews go, their day goes from sundown to the next day, right? So they start Thursday evening started Friday. So Jesus and his disciples, the Galileans, they celebrated the Passover meal Thursday night. So one possibility is the Judeans did a little bit different. It's still the same day, and they observed the Passover meal the next day. And they don't want to be defiled. I mean, this is a big event for us, and we can't come under your roof. Here's the problem. Their rabbis taught them if they go under a Gentile's roof, then they are now defiled, and you can't keep the sacrifice. It's going to take a time period, all these ceremonies to get you cleansed, ceremonially cleansed again. Well, they don't want to get defiled. The other is... They've already taken the Passover, possibly, and what this means is we want to be able to observe the rest of the eight-day feast. So we don't want to be defiled for the whole eight-day feast. And so here they come. They won't come inside. Pilate's forced to go outside. I believe he's highly agitated because it's early in the morning. He doesn't like these guys to begin with. This is unplanned. It's early, and now they want him to come inside, and they're implying that he's unclean. Now, before I jump back into the rest of that, I don't have a lot of preaching points, but I think we just discovered one. Did you feel it? Look at verse 28 again. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled. We won't go in there. And they refused. Guys, do you remember last week? Y'all remember this if you were here? These chief priests and elders of Israel took money out of the Jewish treasury, 30 pieces of silver, to pay Judas to betray Jesus. When he does that, and Judas ends up seeing how the trial of the Lord goes, and he's condemned, he's going to be condemned to death. He has remorse, not repentance, but he wants to give the money back. He takes the money back. They don't want it back. 
But he ends up putting him in a position where he's going to make them take the money back because he throws it in the temple. And then he goes and hangs himself and commits suicide. You remember what they did? Now they have this money, but they said it would be unlawful to put the money back into the treasury because this is blood money. So as we said last week, in their mind, it's okay to take money out of the treasury to bribe a man, to have a man executed. It's okay to take money out of the treasury for blood money, but once it's been used as blood money, it can't go back in. And that would really bother their conscience. This would be unlawful to them. So here we are the next morning, after all they've done, now all of a sudden, we can't be defiled. Guys, I'm, I promise you, if there was an overhang with open air and poles, and that overhang came just right at the edge of this, this stage here, they would not go right there and put their foot. Like, no, they will not do that. Why? Their conscience won't let them do that. You say, Jeff, okay, yeah, that's kind of, kind of silly. And by the way, this is a man-made thing. This is a man-made thing. They have all these qualms and scruples and guilty conscience about breaking their man-made laws. We're not going to do it. But think of this. You've got to understand this point. At that very moment, these Jewish leaders were committing the all-time most wicked sin that's ever been committed. Do you feel that? The worst sin ever committed. They're in the middle of it. But they're not going to go put what, three inches over this line. What does that tell me? That tells me something about human nature. We need to check. I know I hit it last week. I'm going to hit it again. We need to realize, wow, we are capable of extreme wickedness. Pretend you haven't heard this. Pretend you haven't heard this. God, the almighty king of the universe, has an eternal son who's a spirit, who's eternally one with him. He sends him down to earth, becomes a human being. And of all times and places and kinds of humans he could be, he sent them to their time and he became a Jewish man. He healed people and taught nothing but truth and did nothing but good and lived a perfect life. Yet they hated him. They break over 12 judicial laws and tell repeated lies to have him to secure his condemnation and have him executed, but they'll not step over a line. This is what we're capable of left to ourselves, ladies and gentlemen. We can commit the greatest kinds of wickedness, and then we'll be hypocritical about it. And all the while, we're extremely blind because what we're doing, we do it, by the way, Christians, we can be so hypocritical and blind to things. I'm talking, I'm talking about me. I'm talking about you. What you ought to do, you ought to go home and say, Lord, show me, am I guilty of doing the same thing? They're doing this worst sin of all time, but they won't break the rabbi's man-made rule about defilement. What does that tell Guys, we will major on minor things and then turn around and minor on major things. I don't have any names in mind. I promise I don't. But what I'm about to tell you has happened thousands of times. There are people who are in my position, have the same position as I do, and I'll promise you, thousands of times. They have embezzled money from their church, or whatever Christian organization they work for. 
straight up embezzled money, stealing, not just stealing, stealing money that was given to God. There are men in my position at the same time embezzling money. They're also in a time, an extended time of an ongoing adulterous affair, a physically adulterous affair. You say, preachers actually did that? Oh, it's happened tens of thousands of times. But if they were to get up on a Sunday morning not dressed in a suit, they would feel dirty and unholy and kind of out of sorts. That's just not right. I, I got to preach in a suit. And if you're going to preach on Sunday night, you at least need to have a sport coat on. And Wednesday night, you should have at least, at the very least, a button-up, all the way button-up shirt. And if you're going to come to the office, in the pastor's office, you got to look and... They'll not do certain things, but they're in an adulterous affair robbing God's money. This happens all the time. It's going on in South Carolina today. Promise you. Say, yeah, those preachers, man, they're, they're, they're wicked. There are people, maybe even listening right now, maybe, they'll not use certain words because society has said these words ought not be said. The list just keeps growing. Like, whoa, what's, what's allowed now? Oh, that's not allowed now. Oh, okay, whoa, 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 and I get it. But there are people that will not say certain words that are nowhere to be found in the Bible. Won't do that. Boy, they'd feel dirty if they were to say those words. But in their heart, they're filled with anger and lust and greed and pride and bitterness and unforgiveness And in their action, down at the job, they tell lies one after another. They're stealing money from their company. They're involved in adulterous things. But boy, if they say just the wrong word, because mama always told me that's a dirty word. I'm not saying go out and say a bunch of dirty words. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just saying we are so out of balance. We We can just choke over the littlest thing and allow the biggest things. Is there anything in your life that you're like, boy, I have just feel like that's just wrong and I won't do it. But right now this morning, in your heart, there is like blatant sin and the Holy Spirit hates it. And you're just allowing it like it's normal. The Lord needs to help us. I thought about that a while ago in my office. You guys know that I, I check seven sources each week. And because I'm now 26 chapters out of 28... If I were to go a week and check only five of my sources, I would feel... I mean, if I were to say, all right, these are the five you really get the most out of. When's the last time you've actually actually quoted this guy? Save some time. Just don't use those two anymore. I should have done that. It would save me a lot of time. But I just feel guilty. Like, I got to do it. I'm not prepared if I don't read all but That's the silliest little superstitious thing in my mind. But is there anything in my heart that is truly... Major. What about your heart? Back to our text. Look at verse 29 again. So Pilate, now he has to go outside. I don't know, are you guys feeling the, the animosity uh, that has been growing? I mean, it's the, the tension is just ratcheted up. Look at verse 29 again. So Pilate went outside to that. I believe he doesn't want to go outside, but okay, we're going to play nice. He asks a very normal question. What accusation do you bring against this man? Do you, do you hear what they say? If you've asked for accusations, what do you expect? Accusations. What are the charges? This is a normal thing. 
Really look with discernment at verse 30, because I'm reading between the lines, and I'm not saying I'm not going to die for what I'm about to say, but I believe there's, there's things that are implied by verse 30. They answered him, when he's asked, he asked for the charges, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. What, what, don't say it out loud. What are you hearing in your mind? Do you hear it? What do you mean charges? If he's not a criminal, we wouldn't have him here. Translation. Don't ask a lot of questions. We've already decided he's guilty. We just need you to rubber stamp the thing. We just sign off on what we need done. Well, Pilate doesn't feel like it. Apparently, verse 31, the way I'm reading it, sounds like, the, oh, you're not going to do me the courtesy of giving me charges, specific charges against the man you want me to reach a conclusion, give a verdict about? You're not going to do me the courtesy of giving me charges? Guess what? What if I don't do you the courtesy of listening to your case? Look at verse 31. Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. You, you feel it now? What are the charges? Hey, if he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't be down here. Oh, yeah? Well, why don't you just try him yourselves? Oh, yeah, well, we would if we could. But as you know, your people won't let us handle our own business. We can't get the death penalty. And so now Pilate knows. So you're after the death penalty. This is what they want. Quickly look at verse 32 because we need to touch on this just for a moment. John writes, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. We need you. They have no idea. The Jews are saying, we can't put him to death. We could, we would if we could, but you guys will come down on us. So we need you to do it. We need the Romans to do it. You guys help me out now. I'm going to ask you to help me. Had the Jews executed Jesus for blasphemy, that's their charge, he would have died by what? Stoning. Is there blood shed with stoning? I'm sure there is. There possibly could be a pool of blood if you get the right spot. But there's also potential of the right stone. We're talking about stones. We're not talking about rocks. When they stone someone, it is possible for a stone to hit just right and that thing, to go, the force to go inward and it to kill a person and then fall down. So write this down. I want to propose to you that had the Jews executed Jesus, he would have been stoned. But that's not God's plan. This is what John is hitting at in verse number 32. Why? To satisfy God's wrath. To satisfy God's wrath against our sin, Jesus' death had to be more bloody. More bloody than even a stoning potentially could be. It has to be more bloody than that. I typed that out the other night as I started. I think I even printed it and I went back. And I thought, is this even true? Am I overbaking the ham a little bit? Making too much out of something? But go ahead and write this down. I believe this is right. To satisfy the wrath of God against our sin, the Lord's death could not have been by stoning or drowning or hanging. Therefore, it's as Jesus had predicted back in Matthew 20, verse 19. It had to be by Gentile, the Gentile version of execution, which in this time period was crucifixion. It has to be by crucifixion. And I thought about that. Like, okay, Jeff, are you kind of like forcing an idea here that crucifixion's bloodier than stoning, and that's the reason? Maybe there's multiple reasons, but I think this comes into play, and here's why. I want you to remember this. Of all, just pretend you're God. Of all the time period, we're on, we're on a line now. Of all the time periods of mankind, you could have sent your son anywhere in the world at any of the time periods 
Is it an accident that God sends his son to that particular place when the Roman Empire is in charge and their mode of execution is by crucifixion? I say that's not an accident. I say that's sending a message. Jesus' death had to be bloody. And stoning was not bloody enough. And the Gentiles were therefore involved. Now... Let's put two things together and let's go to our third section. Y'all ready? With me? Watch. Pilate calls for charges. If he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have him down here. Well, I'm going to need more than that. Why don't you just go try him? He's out. We can't. So we know that he wants charges, specific things. Remember, Matthew says that Pilate was amazed as he says, don't you hear all the things that they're charging you? So where is this? John doesn't record all of it. And neither does Matthew nor Mark. So thankfully we have Luke. If you're in your Bibles, flip over to Luke 23. If you're looking at the page, then look to the left side of your handout. Luke chapter 23. Let's notice the specific charges. So somewhere in there, after their little spat back and forth, what are the charges? Just sign off on it. Well, then you just do it yourself. No, we can't. We can't execute. We don't have the authority. Okay, well, I'm still going to need some charges. Finally, they come up with what happens in Luke 23. And thankfully, we have all the Gospels to complement. Luke, Luke 23, verse 1. Here's Luke's version. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him. And we, that's where you insert the other passages. But now Luke tells us the specifics. They began to accuse him, saying, so here they are talking to Pilate. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. You want charges? And I don't think found here. One person I read took it as they tried him judicially. We've come to a conclusion that he did this. I don't think that's how they're using it. I think it means we happened along and found him doing these things. We found this man, you want charges? We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. We found him doing these things. And then Luke, skipping a lot, we're going to need to go back to John in a minute, Luke, skipping a lot, jumps right to verse 3, and Pilate asked him, by the way, this is inside, all that's outside. Jesus is going to go inside. Verse 3, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priest, he goes back outside. Pilate said to the chief priest in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent. Okay, there's the declaration. I find no guilt. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. You hear him? You can't do that. No, you can't say he's innocent. Let him go. No, he keeps stirring up the people. And they're urgent. Wow. Luke skips a lot. He's very condensed. He's only hitting some highlights. But we notice a few things have happened. If you're taking notes, write the following. Knowing that Pilate, here's the Jewish leaders, they know Pilate is not going to accept their charge of blasphemy. And that's the real thing they have against Jesus. He's not going to accept that, so here's their solution. We need to come up with some political charges, and I believe this is one of the main things they did early that morning at the third phase of the Jewish trial. So they come up with some, some political charges, and that's what you read here. This is not their true heart. It's not the real problem. 
with themselves, but they know that's not going to fly with Pilate, so they need something that'll stick with the Roman governor. And so they come up with three charges. If you're taking notes, write these three down. Number one, they charge Jesus with perverting the nation. This man, we found him perverting the nation. Three problems with that. Number one, it's a bold-faced lie. He's not been perverting the nation. Number two, second problem. This is not going to ring true in Pilate's ear. You've got to believe this guy's not stupid. This doesn't even ring true in his ear. Oh, you're saying he's a big troublemaker. He's a seditionist. He's stirring up insurrection and riots. Pilate's smart enough to know. He doesn't say it. Notice he's not going to even ask about this because he's a smart man. He just moves right over. Oh, troublemaker. Okay. Pilate's no doubt thinking, if that were true, then I would have seen him already. Because I would have been able to trace it back. I have guys all around the nation. This guy's not a troublemaker. The third thing that's a problem here is this is such a vague. This is, guys, if, I'm telling you, if there was a 15-year-old lawyer, just an aspiring lawyer in the room, and they were there that day with no training, they could shoot down this accusation. Uh, we found this man to be a troublemaker. And there you stand, 15 years old, and you want to be a lawyer. Uh, excuse me, I'm his lawyer, I'm Jesus' lawyer. Um, do you have documentation showing exactly how he stirred up trouble? Who are you? I'm just asking. Do you have documentation showing exactly how he stirred up trouble? Where, where exactly did he stir up trouble? And when did he stir up trouble? And who are the witnesses of this trouble? And were there other witnesses that would go against your story? Oh, by the way, what is the fallout of all this trouble that he's been stirring up? They have nothing. He's not a troublemaker. He's not a seditionist. In fact, on this charge, MacArthur writes the following. You guys remember this? You'll remember, MacArthur writes, that Jesus even taught. Is he against the Roman Empire? Is he going around teaching people to attack and disobey? MacArthur writes that Jesus even taught that if a Roman soldier commanded a person to carry his gear for a mile, which by Roman law he was permitted to do, what did Jesus tell that person to do? Carry it two miles. This is, they say he's stirring up trouble against Rome. Jesus says, hey, by the way, if a Roman soldier ever asks you to carry his gear for a mile, they have the right to do that. Don't carry it for a mile. Ask him, can I carry it two? What? Can I carry it for you two miles? Looks like you need some help. One of the things that irritated many of the Jews is that Jesus did not stir up people to trouble. Probably Judas. Wants him. Start a riot, a revolution. Jesus does not do this. Second charge, if you're taking notes, they accuse Jesus of forbidding the Jewish people from paying the Roman poll tax. I specifically, I think, it may be in your notes. Did I write that? Nope, I didn't put that. To pay Roman taxes. If you want to write out to the side, P-O-L-L. In other words, it's not just the idea of income tax or property tax. This had to do with the poll tax on them as a person. If you've been with us a little while, now, honestly, you're going to be surprised we're going to go all the way back to Tuesday. This is Friday morning we're studying. We're going to go back and refer to what happened on Tuesday of this same week. Less than 72 hours before this. Now for us in here, this was months ago studying. Months ago, right? When we studied Tuesday. Now we're on Friday morning. But we've covered chapters during that time. But here's the point. Remember the enemies of Christ come up and they want to ask him a question. Should the Jew, he's teaching him, the, excuse me, Jesus, should the Jewish people pay the poll tax to the Romans? And we even know what's in their heart. If he says pay the tax, then great, the Jews will get mad at him and not follow him anymore because they don't like the Romans. And if he says don't pay the tax, they're going to immediately go report him to the Romans. 
But what does Jesus do? He says, hand me a denarius. They hand him a coin. He says, whose image is on this? And they say, oh, that's Caesar's image. And he gives the classic statement. Then render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to God that which is God's. On this morning, they are blatantly lying. Yeah, this man, you want to know why we brought him to you? He's telling all the people not to pay the Roman poll tax. That's the opposite of what he was teaching. Number three, they charge Jesus with making himself out to be a political king, the king of the Jews. And if you were to read all four Gospels back to back and just give a couple hours, just like, I'm going to read all this together and try to get myself a little harmony and a little timeline, put this passage with that one, here's what you would find. In none of them does Pilate address the first two charges, but he does address that all four find Pilate asking Jesus about him being a king. Why? Now think for a moment, two reasons. Number one, if Jesus were a king, Pilate knows that's going to answer and explain the other two. Because if someone sees themselves as a rival king, then they're going to tell people not to pay taxes and they're going to be stirring people up. So really, let's just get to the heart. That's the question I need to ask him. And the other thing is, if anybody out there in in the Roman Empire is in a land and they're claiming that they are ruling over the people of a land other than Caesar, anybody other than Caesar, then Pilate is bound to investigate that. Do you really see yourself as a king? All right, so there, I told you it would be much of the message would be in those two things. Now that brings us up to the second point. Jesus admits to being a king. Pilate asks for charges. They give a smart aleck answer back. He gives another smart aleck answer back to theirs. They give another one back to him. Finally, they give some charges. Two of them don't stick. He doesn't even address them, but he does want to find out about this one. So with this in mind, leave Luke 23 if you have your Bible open there or go to the opposite part of your handout and go to John chapter 18. And would you notice with me now verse 33. While you're doing that, I'm going to reread Matthew 27, 11, and 12 because we're not forgetting technically our study is of Matthew. But I really felt like we needed to hit these others this morning. Jesus admits to being a king. Matthew 27, 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. Now, John 18. Let's pick up where we left off a while ago. We can't kill him, so we need you to sign off on it. And that had to do with why Jesus prophesied that he would be executed by crucifixion in, in, under a Gentile court. Now verse 33 to 38. So Pilate, so here's the scene. Pilate at this point, John doesn't include it. We insert Luke between verse 32 and 33. Luke 23, 1 through 5 goes right in there. Pilate has now heard th- these three charges. He has sent Jesus inside because he knows that Jesus is not going to get a fair trial out here in front of these guys. He wants to question him privately, so he sends Jesus on in, finishes some things here with the chief priest. Verse 33. So then Pilate entered his headquarters. Again, they're not coming in, but Jesus, he's not feeling defiled. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, so Jesus is standing, Pilate is sitting, and now here's where we have what Matthew wrote. He called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? But John's going to give us more than just what Matthew or Luke wrote. Jesus answered. So here's the question. Jesus, picture it in your mind. They're indoors. Pilate's sitting. He's running back and forth between the two. Jesus is standing, Pilate sitting, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord? 
or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. <laughs> it's like, so you're a king. You're talking about your kingdom, so you obviously you're admitting you're, you say that I am a king. Like, what? what? Help me here. Verse 37 again. You say that I am a king. Now watch what Jesus does. For this purpose, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Catch that phrase. Who talks like that? Jesus is obviously referring to his pre-existence. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. I'm here to bear witness to the truth. Everyone, again, he's looking at Pilate, they're private. Everyone who is of the, everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Are you starting to put all the pieces? You got to get a little here and a little there and put it all together. Go back to verse 34. So Jesus is going to admit, are you the king of the Jews? To me, I wish I had more time. I want to invite you just to go home and just picture verse 34. Are you the king of the Jews? I'm imagining they're a few feet away from each other, and Jesus is in shackles. His face is swollen and cut. He don't look like a king. He doesn't look like a king. We were singing a song a while ago, and I've been reading about David and Saul, and Saul blew it, and so David's taken the kingship, and David would lead the troops out. And he did that even as he under Saul, and he does that even as he's under uh, in his own, own kingdom. But I remember the one time where he sends Joab out to fight the battles, and David's not leading the army himself, and he gets in a lot of trouble. Let me just say, on this occasion right here, Jesus doesn't look like a king. But our king is out leading the battle. He's fighting the battle all by himself. I got this. Oh, I'm a king. But I'm not a king like you think of as a king. And right now my appearance doesn't look at all like a, a king. But also, again, I'm adding to the text. What in essence is happening is, Pilate, you need to understand there's more to me than what you're seeing with your naked eye. And there's more to this moment there's more to me that's going to come into the future. So we all know, as we sang a while ago, when we all get to heaven, we will see Jesus as the king. On this day, he does not look like a king. He is tired and weary and beaten, and he's in shackles. So are you a king? Now look back at verse 34. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? That kept jumping at me, and I'm not going to be able to get it all across. I believe the Lord is looking at him and saying something to this effect. Are you asking this because someone else has said it? Or is this your question? You want to know if I'm a king? What do you have in mind when you want to know if I'm a king? What do you have in mind as a king? 
I think we're on different ideas of a king. And then he starts talking about his kingdom. So what do you have in mind? I believe the Lord is doing this. Are you, do you picture, picture Jesus a few feet away talking to Pilate, seated, supposedly in the seat of authority. Jesus standing in the place of the accused, but Jesus is talking to him. What do you think of when you think of a king? And here's the question. Who really wants to know? Pilate, do you want to know if I'm a king? Do you want to know the truth of this matter? Pilate, are you just doing your duty? Are you just going through the motions to come to a conclusion? Or do you really want to know who I am? Do you, Pilate, this is a big moment for you. This is a big moment for you. In my mind, I thought about Pilate sitting there. His mind has to be absolutely racing at this point. Jesus is standing. You've got to understand this. As soon as the Sermon on the Mount was over, we have this commentary in Matthew chapter 7. Everybody's amazed at how Jesus talks, his content and his authority, just his person. His enemies send guards, temple guards, to go arrest Jesus. They go to arrest him. They hear him teaching. They come back to these leaders, and they're like, where is he? And they're like, why didn't you arrest him? Like, nobody has ever talked like this man talks. No one speaks like him. That's why we didn't arrest him. The one, the being who speaks like no one has ever spoken is standing over Pilate, looking eye to eye. I mean, looking into Pilate's very soul. And all of a sudden, he's interrogating Pilate. Who's asking? Who really wants to know? What do you think of when you think of a king? In my mind, I'm feeling Pilate, his mind spinning. He's probably thinking, what just happened? What's going on here? Why are you talking to me this way? Why am I letting you talk to me this way? Why am I going to let you talk to me this way? We're having a conversation. You're not at all afraid of me. You're not afraid of them. I have the right to have you killed or let go. And you don't seem to be at all worried about that. Why are you so calm? How can you be so measured? Why are you so authoritative? How come you just took control of the situation? How come you were so original? I've never seen anybody like this man. Why are you asking if I'm a king? Is it because somebody else has asked you? Am I a Jew? I'm not a Jew. Those guys are after you. You've done something. It's early morning. They woke me up. You've done something to tick those guys off. They want me to have you killed. What have you done? You've done something. What have you done? And then Jesus admits. Quickly, look at verse 36. My kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. If you're taking notes, Jesus informs Pilate that his kingdom is not like any other kingdom in the history of the world, nor any to come. What's different about Jesus? He has no standing army. Where, if you're a king, where's your standing army? We've not scouted you guys, not heard anything about you. He has no standing army. His people, his followers, his subjects, we do not wage physical battles to advance his kingdom. It's as though the Lord is saying, Pilate, buddy, calm down. My kingdom is no threat to your temporary empire that governs over the bodies of human beings because my kingdom, what the Lord is in essence saying, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom, not temporary like the Roman Empire. His is an eternal spiritual kingdom over all aspects of all people in all places in all times. My kingdom's over all that. And 
Pilate, if you and your people play your cards right, my kingdom is no threat to you. It's no threat to Rome. I'm no threat to Caesar as long as you play your cards right. But ultimately, Jesus is saying, in essence, I have a kingdom and it's over yours, but it's a whole different type of kingdom than yours. And all Pilate can do is verse 37, something that I would ask. This is something I would ask. So you're, so you are saying you're a king. You're, you're talking about your kingdom. So that's an admission. You are a king. Let's cover it again. Let's go over it again. So then the Lord launches into verse 37. You say that I am a king. Yes. Do you see it? The other two gospels, Matthew and Luke and Mark, you have said so. Do you guys remember a few weeks ago? Do you remember this? I, I, I cut out the whole quote. Do you remember this? Caiaphas, the high priest, says, I adjure thee by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says the same exact wordings. You have said so. And he goes on and gives this explanation. And R.T. France told us that that is an affirmative answer. It's a yes answer, but it's a qualified affirmative. In other words, I wouldn't word it the way you've worded it. And when I'm admitting to being a king, I don't have in mind what you have in your mind. Yes, I'm a king, but I don't mean by that what you mean. The connotation that you're thinking of is not the way I mean that I'm a king. But the answer to your question is, yes, I'm a king. And so finally, let's come down the home stretch this morning. Verse 37, Jesus continues. For this purpose, I was born. You say that I am a king. Yes, I am a king. You said it. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. I've come to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, and here's the problem. We don't know how Pilate said this. I said it really bland a while ago on purpose. What is truth? How, how do you think he asked that? There he is. They're private. Pilate's getting ready to go out there and tell him what he thinks about the situation. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Do you hear it like this? What is truth? And off he goes. Is he sarcastic or is he searching and longing? Is it this? What is truth? Truth? What is truth? Truth? What is truth? There's no truth. Do you see how it can be taken? One as like sincere. What is truth? The other is sarcastic. Listen, if it's sarcastic, let's just hit the two options. If it's sarcastic, this was Pilate's way of saying, I know you Jews are religious and you're obviously religious. Listen, have you ever heard this? All religions say they have the truth. All religions, all of them, just ask them. No, 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 but we really do. We really do. They don't. In those other countries, in those barbaric, pagan, non-Christian. This morning, they're telling their people, oh, those Christians, they don't. And we have the, and you ought to go let yourself be killed for this. Everybody's always said they have the truth. So here's the question. It's just, maybe Pilate means, who decides? Everybody says they're right. Who ultimately decides? Who have you decided has the truth? Or is he sincere? Truth? I'd love to find it. I believe it's out there. There's absolute truth somewhere. I'm sure it is. I just haven't been able to find it. I find that today, we live in a world where people to this moment are still searching for the truth. Some people are looking to the philosophers. The latest, greatest book. Hey, have you read this one? It's got a lot of great ideas. 
this new philosopher person, wonderful ideas, self-help, and they read them. Some, this is always the case, there's always a remnant of people that want to go back and read people from 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago. Or you really want to be real radical, go back and read the philosophers from 2,500 years ago. You want to find some truth, and they'll read people from 2,500 years ago, the Greeks. And like, I want to find the truth. And they just work and work, and they're studying this, and they find a little nugget, and they think they found, I've got some absolute truth. These real smart guys, 2,500 years ago. Other people, this is their version of finding the truth. My political party, we stand for the truth. This party here stands for the truth. Others, it's this. This religion over here has the truth. I found the right religion that has the truth. Some, even within Christianity, they have this mindset. My denomination, we have the truth. Our denomination has the truth. Now, that denomination over there and that one and that one, they have some of the truth. But we have it all. We've got the truth, truth. We really got it figured out. You say, Jeff, now that you've made us all skeptics, what's the Lord saying? (laughs) Write this down. Absolute truth does exist. But what Jesus is saying, absolute truth in its purest form, is not found in a philosopher. It's not found in a philosophy. It's not found in a political party. None of them. None of them are all for the truth. They'll all lie in a heartbeat. You wouldn't want to know what your political party's doing behind the scenes. You wouldn't want to know. And I know I'm making somebody mad. I don't really care right now. It's the truth. Some are better than others. If you want to see me, I'll maybe give you some insight about which ones are better privately. Not do it publicly. Absolute truth's not found in a political party. And it's not found in a denomination. No denomination has a corner market. Where is it found? In Jesus himself. Absolute truth is found in Jesus himself. And it's found in God's written word. I'm just going to throw it out there because we spent so long on it last week. Jesus says he came to bear witness to the truth. So what did he come? He came to bear witness to the truth about himself. And that's what he did. He talked about who he is. He came to bear witness about mankind's sin. It's a lot worse than we thought. But he also came to bear witness to the Father. And he taught us about the Father's holiness, that we'll not allow any sin. And Jesus taught more about hell than anybody in the Bible. So Jesus taught us about the Father's justness. He taught us about his holiness, his justness. But he taught us about the Father's love, that loved mankind so much that he sent him, Jesus, to the earth to die for our sins. And he taught us about the grace of God, the Father's gracious spirit. That in other words, don't even try to save yourselves. All you can do is trust what Jesus has done on the cross because God the Father gives salvation away for free. That is absolute truth. Jesus equates his voice, my voice, and absolute truth are one and the same. They're one thing. They are the same thing. When you hear Jesus speaking, you are hearing the truth. He came to bear witness as the king who is true. And now that takes us to our third and brief point, and that's that Pilate declares Jesus guiltless. Pilate, in his conclusion, declares Jesus Guiltless. I'm going to touch these fast. Matthew 27, verse 11. If you want to look at your handout, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, 
I'm sorry, before I get to him declaring him guiltless, I do need to touch this. Look at verse uh, 11 again. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But he was accused, but when he was accused by the chief priest, this is, this is an amazing point, and this is going to come into play. Remember all that background I gave you about Pilate. This needs to be added to it. The last little phrase in verse 14, let me get to it. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. So they're accusing him. Now we know the things they're accusing him of. Sedition. Teaching people not to pay their taxes. Announcing himself that he's a king. You guys are flat out lying in Luke chapter 23 verse number 2 when you said, We found him doing these things. Jesus never said that he was a king or the Christ publicly. So you're lying when you're saying he's doing that. So verse Verse 13, Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. He doesn't even answer Pilate about their false charges. So that the governor was greatly amazed. Here we go again. Guys, listen, I'm going to hit this fast. A few weeks ago, we have the Sanhedrin led by Caiaphas bringing all these false charges against Jesus. Lie after lie, Jesus says nothing to defend himself. And then, when it comes to question of, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, then he speaks up. Here he is now in front of Pilate, and again, the chief priests and elders are lying against him. Now they're bringing up new lies that are blatant, bold-faced lies. Jesus says nothing. But when asked about his true identity, tell me, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Then he speaks up. Do you see what the Lord's pattern is? When lies are being told about him, he says absolutely nothing. Nothing. But when his identity is at stake, then he speaks up. Quickly write this note. Jesus refuses to defend himself against lies and against sedition charges and forbidding the Jews to pay their taxes. But he speaks up when it's about his true identity. And I have to ask myself again, why does he only speak up then and not at these other times? And the answer is because... He can't defend himself because it would be easy to defend himself. He can't defend himself because it would be successful. He would easily, again, a a 15-year-old could go in and win this case easily. There There is no evidence against the Lord. His enemy, he's so innocent. All they could come up with is lies. That's all they have. Hey, Graceview, if you were to follow me. It wouldn't take you long to find some charges against me. And if I were to follow you, I could find some charges against you. His enemy's been hounding him for three years, and all they have come up with are lies. He's that perfect. You see that last phrase in Matthew 27, 14? So that the governor, you see that? The governor's greatly amazed. You see it? You see that word amazed? You know what it means? Surprised. Amazed. Surprised. It means this, impressed. I believe when Jesus took him, when he took Jesus inside and he was interrogating Jesus and Jesus started interrogating him and Jesus looking into his very soul, I believe right about that, putting that along with his silence in front of false accusations, it just sat there and caused Pilate to realize, I have never seen anyone like, this is the single most unique, most impressive person I've ever met in my whole life. So much so that he marches out and he tells the chief priests and the elders, I find him guiltless. Luke 23, verse 4, Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. John 18, 
You have it. I've lost my marker. John 18. Look at verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in this man. Here's what Pilate said. Guys, I know a criminal when I see one. I've had plenty of them come, and I've tried a lot of cases. I know a criminal when I see one, and he is not one. He's the most impressive, unique, amazing person I've ever seen in my life. He is innocent. He is guiltless. If you're taking notes, write that down. That is the official verdict of Jesus' case. The Roman governor has tried Jesus. The charges have been brought. So officially, officially, the case is now closed. Pilate's verdict is not guilty. What should have happened? If you're still with me and I'm almost done, what should have happened at that moment? I find him guiltless. He is not guilty. He is innocent. He should have been released and provided some protection and they should have been sent home and that should have been the end of it. But do you remember what Luke writes? Here's where I'm closing. I'm really closing. Look at Luke 23. Look at verse 5. I find no guilt in this man. Verse 4. Verse, but Luke writes, but they were urgent. Hey, you that, are, that know the New Testament pretty well, pay attention. I'm going to ask you a question. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. What word did Pilate hear? What word did Pilate hear that's in verse 5? It's a place. What did he hear? Do you remember? He's innocent. He's not guilty. You can't do that. And they get urgent. He's been stirring up trouble from Galilee all the way down to this place. You can't do it. Pilate heard what? Galilee, you say? Did you say Galilee? Oh, Listen, boys, I don't want to offend you boys because I don't want to get reported back to Rome. But you just said, is this man from Galilee? Yes. Well, that sounds like a case for Herod. It's not my problem. And just so happens Herod's in town for the Passover. This man's under Herod's jurisdiction. I find no guilt in him. Write this quote from Wearsby. Pilate has gone down in history as the man who tried Jesus Christ. Three times declared him not guilty. Guys, this is an amazing sentence. If you had never heard this story before, and this was in today's newspaper, if this was today's newspaper, you would read this and be like, what in the world is going on? Pilate has gone down in history as the man who tried Jesus Christ, tried his case three times, not once, not twice, three times declared him not guilty and yet crucified him just the same. Wait, what's the verdict? Oh, not guilty. And I gave the verdict three times. By the way, that's Wearsby's version. I've heard people say, we're going to study it out. Pilate may have declared Jesus innocent as many as seven times. Somewhere between three and seven times he declared, the verdict is not guilty, and yet you still crucified him. Guys, I have in me, it's almost a curse sometimes. I... I really want things I feel like again I have a twisted version of it but in my mind I want things to be done with a system of justice I have an expectation of justice it should be the right way I can be watching a game I don't care a thing about but that team gets keep getting favorable calls and it just irritates me and I don't care either way but I, I, it, make it fair make it right this is one case that I for one I read this and it one hand it irritates me but on the other in the fuller picture I praise the Lord that justice was not served in this case. 
Because if it had been, then we would be lost in our sins and Jesus would have gone free. So I'm leaving you with this thought. God, as only God could, took this unique dynamic of this tension and animosity between Pilate and the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas and the chief priest. He took that dynamic and he used it to create a unique, perfect storm, so to speak, where God sent his son into the world and the official, the official summation and verdict on his life is the official word. He is innocent. He is guiltless. And yet, in God's plan, he still is going to die the most excruciating death in the history of the world. How those two things can happen, we can't put it together, but God did. Officially, he's innocent, but we're still going to kill him. I've never heard that anywhere else except in the Word of God. And I, for one, am thankful for it. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? I'll leave you with this thought. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is perfect. No sin whatsoever, not even one. His enemies, all they could do was lie. Hey, just taste that for a moment. Ask yourself, have I ever fully understood that Jesus' life was perfect? Sinless. Guys, that's what makes his death on the cross sufficient to pay for your sins. But he's not only perfect. Jesus is truth. Jesus is the truth. Absolute truth. He's never lied. He talks like no one's ever talked. He was always original. He was always authoritative, always in charge, even when in shackles in front of the man that could humanly have him killed. Jesus is always authoritative and in control, in his right mind, calm, discerning, original. He is the truth. So I got to ask you, do you know the truths of Jesus? Have you studied his life? Have you studied what he teaches? Have you studied what he said? Do you know it? But go further. Can you in your heart say, I have studied it. I know what Jesus has taught. I believe it. I believe it in my heart, my soul, my mind. But I believe it so much, I am actually resting in the truth of Christ. What we've learned this morning is that in his first coming to this world, his primary reason he came was to die on the cross. But just behind that, he came to bear witness to the truth about himself and our sin and the truth about God's holiness and wrath and love and grace. Have you understood it and have you rested in it? And then lastly, we know that Jesus is the king. Though he didn't look like a king this day, he is the king. If you saw him right now, you would know. He's the king of all the ones who've ever called themselves a king. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of earth. Is he your king? Let's stand this morning. Father, I pray that you'll go with us this afternoon. May we live with a greater awareness of all that you went through, Lord. I know it's been a lot of teaching this morning. I pray that you will grip us, cause us to now read these texts and see all the hidden behind-the-scenes dynamics that maybe we didn't know about before that had to be in place to bring about such an unusual outcome and conclusion that a man declared innocent multiple times that had no evidence against him could be killed the worst 
most excruciating death in the history of the world. Father, help us to appreciate this more. Give us an appetite for this in the days ahead. May we live in its victory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week.